Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Elixir Nick. This week on our panel, we have Sasha Wolf. Hey, everybody. Alan Waima. Hello, hello. Adi Iyengar. Oh, you got that right. Nice. Hey, all. <laughs> I've been practicing. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. Quick shout out for uh, Dev Influencers if you're looking to grow an audience and build something from that. That's what we're doing over there, devinfluencers.com slash podcast. And this week, we're going to talk about our technical setups. We had a uh, guest cancel, and we thought we'd just dive into this because, yeah, we're all curious to see how this comes together. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So let's just kind of start with the basic. What what text editor or IDE do you guys use? Boring. I use VS Code. I, can <gasps> just... <laughs> I yeah. guess it's like an answer a lot of people would give to that question. But, but I went through quite quite some editors, to be honest. And when I first started out writing Elixir four years ago, I started with Atom. I'm not even sure if that is still a thing, like if Atom still exists. And Atom? Yeah, from, from GitHub. Yeah, that's well. yeah sure, I like, think it's still there. Is that still a thing? Yeah. Okay. And then I actually switched over to Space Max. So for quite a while, I used uh, like VB Emacs set up Space Max, uh, which has actually quite some in nice uh, Elixir integrations. There's one thing I miss in particular where you could like super easily run like the tests in a file through just one from, from one uh, shortcut. And even then say, okay, please run the test on this line and just prove one shortcut. But it was too brittle at the end of the day. And then I switched over to VS Code. And maybe we can go more into detail of that. But I'd like to hear what, what audio you're using, Alan and Adi. I'm actually using IntelliJ for most of my stuff. Sometimes Visual Studio Code. The weird thing about me is I don't know what happened, what I'm doing, but I've actually had more crashes with Visual Studio Code than I've had with IntelliJ. And I'm, I'm not quite sure why. Usually it's the other way around, right? Huh, yeah, <laughs> in my experience. How about you, Adi? Yeah, I, I use I use NeoVim right now. I've been using Vim for a while, and my configurations have grown to a point where I, if I leave, it's I just won't be able to code. <laughs> so I, I I feel like I have a pretty good experience. Uh, I don't think there's anything in my wish list right now, so definitely to switch. Nice. Yeah, I generally use uh, VS Code as well. I have the Emacs key bindings on there because I I can't live without them. But yeah. I used Emacs for quite a long time before I was doing Elixir. So yeah, I'm just used to navigating the file with the heavy use of the control key, I guess. I'm still trying to understand what is the, for me, I like to use Vim. I don't know, because it's always on every machine, right? At least you got VI. Uh -huh. But I always hear a lot of people using Emacs. I'm just curious, what what does Emacs give you that really attracts you versus VI? I, I don't know. VI, you can hack the hell, you can hack the, hack the crap out of it, right? You can add a lot of interesting stuff to it. I think Emacs, I heard, is you can actually have a real IDE to it, just like IntelliJ or something. 
So I was kind of curious about, you know, why Emacs and, and kind of what got you into it. You want to chime in on that, Sasha? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I never used like vanilla Emacs. I always basically jumped in right with like something like SpaceMax. There are also other, other setups like Doom Emacs, I think is also a thing, but I never looked. Uh-huh. Deep into that. The thing about Emacs is like if you like Lisp, Emacs, Emacs is the shit. Like Lisp is not, to be honest, my cup of tea, but like Emacs is basically written in Lisp as far as I know. So you write your configuration files and stuff. It's also in Lisp. So you really literally are programming your editor. So you have a lot of control about, about what Emacs is doing. And that's if that's your cup of tea, if you want to basically customize it to death, then Emacs is definitely the way to go forward. But if you just want something that which works. And then, then that's can can be a bit uh, difficult, which was one of the main reasons why I switched over to VS Code at some point. The one real nice thing about Emacs I kind of miss, especially about SpaceMax, are mnemonic key bindings. And so the idea there basically is is that instead of like having I don't know press cont- command L or command G or command shift something, right? You you have these mnemonic key bindings where you press your control key. Or in case of SpaceMax, it's space. That's why it's called SpaceMax. Mm-hmm. And for example, to like uh, search a file in your project, you can then say space P F, and the P is for project, and the F is for finding files. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you also get like this little window at the bottom, which which basically shows you, okay, yeah. now press F. What are my options here? So it gives you a list like of projects or files or buffers or whatever with like the the the, the key binding character like highlighted and when you press then the character you get to basically next uh, window so it's also very discoverable and that was something like really enjoyable because like after a while that really becomes second nature and you don't have to press three keys at once but you press super fast like space pf and set bam you're like searching through your projects and that's actually something i've done with with visual studio code 2 so like you can also do like key bindings for where you basically press multiple keys one or two after the other, right? But then you don't get this discoverability as you have with an Emacs. But yeah, mnemonic key bindings, if I would have to ship one feature for every editor I would be using, it would be mnemonic key bindings. That's like the shift. Yep. Yeah, for me, it basically boiled down to, I was freelance for quite a while and I was using Vim for quite a bit of it. But I wound up on a project where we were using Emacs and yeah, we had pretty heavily updated our Emacs setups. And we were actually pairing by SSHing into VPSs in the cloud, I think on Amazon. And, you know, so we just had our code on there and we would just work with a TMUX session. So you just connect to this TMUX session and then we would just work through it that way. And I got very, very comfortable using Emacs. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the key, key bindings just are kind of intuitive like Sasha said. And then the other thing is, is at this point, I just navigate files much more quickly that way because I don't have to think about what I'm doing and the key bindings generally just work as expected in VS Code. But I did move over to VS Code because, yeah, it's, it's a giant hassle to maintain all of the plugins for Emacs and make sure that they're all, you have the right ones and the right versions and that they play nice and blah, blah, blah. And all the configuration is in Emacs Lisp, which wasn't my favorite thing to play in. And so, yeah, anyway, that's, that's kind of where I, I landed there. So anyway. In my experience, especially with the plugins, it's like at some point you have a setup which works, then you're like, let's mm-hmm. be careful. But like, okay, I'm not going to update anything. It's going to break. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> and that, that, that became a bit unnerving after a while. Yep. I'm kind of curious on the IntelliJ front, Alan. IntelliJ is a Java editor, if I remember right. So how do you make it play nice with Elixir? 
Yeah, one of the people in Elixir, I, I forgot his name. He made an IntelliJ plugin, or uh, yeah, for Elixir, and yeah, it, it works out quite well. There's even like a debugger you can use. I, I tried to use it once. It was a little bit weird, but I think you know running a debugger in Elixir or Lang is a little bit strange. I think because you can't really stop the system like you can with sequential normal sequential programming, right? But yeah, and otherwise, I mean, I like it just because, you know, I can command click around to different modules and, and things like that. And I like clicking buttons more than pressing, you know, keys and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it's slower, but I don't know. It's just nice pressing a green button and seeing a green test rather than pressing a key command to, to run a test. And yeah, you want to be able to just right click on a test and say run this specific test rather than try to figure out how to, you know, I have to probably tag it and then run the tag. Um, I'm not too sure how you guys would do like individual tests in, in like uh, Space Max or, or Vim or whatever. There, there may be little hacks like that you can probably add into, I'm guessing. Yeah, you can. Some of the plugins that I used in the past allowed you to do that. You could run the test you were in, the test pile you were in, or the full test suite. And it would just, it would give you another window or another, what do you call it, a pane, I guess. And yeah, it would just run it basically on the command line. And it would give you all the command line output. Yeah, so. Vim with the uh, Tmux becomes like extremely powerful. Like that's, uh, yeah. I think Chuck, that's what you meant by pain. And yeah, I, I think uh, Alan, you put it really well. Like clicking buttons versus uh, clicking on things versus pressing buttons. I think pressing mm-hmm. buttons has, has been the way I've been coding. And I think with Emacs and Vim, the choice for me, what I really enjoyed Emacs because I loved the fact that I can code in language which makes sense instead of Vim script. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The problem was, I think, the lack of the keyboard macros, right? Like in Vim, you can record an operation and perform, you know, record into a register and perform that multiple times. I didn't find a nice way to do that in Emacs, at least. And also the ergonomics as well, like the my pinky finger started. I don't know. I just I, the, the the control key was like not very uh, friendly. <laughs> so yeah, the one thing I do miss about one thing I actually I lied. So there is a thing in my wish list for Vim is that you ha- so you say you want to delete a word, right? In Vim, you do like DW, right? You do the operation first, you do the, the verb first, and then the noun second. So you are doing the operation. If you want to delete 10 words, you do D10W. You don't know what happens until you type D10W and boom, 10 words are gone. And like, oh, I meant nine words, right? Like the, and you can use a visual more and get rid of it, but it'd be nice to do 10WD, right? Like, so you can see, you can so it would highlight what you selected before the operation has happened. I imagine it would be a much harder <laughs> to do, to make a plugin that does that. But that's like my only item on my wish list that might increase my productivity. Yeah, I think you can still press... You to undo in Vim, if I remember correctly, right? So there's a way to undo right. something. If that's right, problem. but it'd be slow. Like I have to go back, right? So it'd be nice if I'm doing 10W, it highlights a word, boom, and then does a D. I could do in visual mode too and highlight the 10 words, but again, it's an extra button. It just, to me, doesn't make sense to do D10W. It doesn't, there's no benefit to doing that, you know, over 10WD. <laughs> but Oh. I do. I kind of like that. I like what you're saying. Uh, that would be kind of cool. Like you said, 10W, then it highlights it, then D, and then it deletes it. I actually, I do like that idea. That's that's kind of, that when I think about it, it sounds pretty visually satisfying to see. Yeah. Uh, and if there's a way that you could back out, right, that would be good. Yeah, yeah, I right. like that. 
Yeah, Ani, do you want to like give the listeners like an idea about how, how Vim works? Because I mean, I also use Vim key bindings, but I guess there are a lot of people out there like to whom Vim users look like wizards. So <laughs> magic. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually, to me, I don't know. I, I when I try to do VS Code and stuff, I it it looks magic to me how fast like you guys code and VS Code. I, I'm like half as productive uh, honestly i mean what you're used to the, the idea of modes is what you have to get used to and the idea of i mean how to navigate from one place to anywhere in the file without using a cursor like a like a mouse a movable mouse right like yeah i mean that that's what vim is so you don't have to touch your <laughs> uh, uh trackpad I, I don't really know how to explain it in in without taking over the entire episode <laughs> what vim does but yeah, I mean, do, do you have any anything specific, Sasha, that I could like explain? Yeah, I, I, I was like getting at modes. So um, basically, what, I mean, what I like about them is like that it separates like editing and inserting text with like from moving through a file, right? Because right. The default default mode is the command mode, and there you do this D10, for example, or D10W, where you delete ten words. Right. And then, then you get a whole bunch of more keys to do to do movement instead of just like for example pressing command whatever right, right. You, 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 you only have to press a few buttons to actually move from the file so yeah i mean when i used space max i also used the vim mode so like i was using emacs with like the vim mode and surprisingly emacs has a very very powerful emulation so um while i did, did never use macros that much emacs does provide macro like the, the vim mode in emacs does provide macros and like fun fact the vim mode in emacs is actually called the evil, evil mode right yeah because <laughs> like the emacs vi yeah. emulation layer vi emacs vi layer because layers actually work from the emacs configuration and stuff so yeah it's the evil mode well they say that uh, richard stallman says vi 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 is the editor of the devil so <laughs> success <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's funny. So yeah, so are there any plugins, I guess, for VS Code or Vim or IntelliJ beyond sort of the language services that you need or that you think people ought to have? Yeah, for VS Code, it's certainly like the Elixir language server, to be honest. Right. I mean, that's, if you want to build Elixir, it makes sense to have like, some IntelliSense. Right. To be honest, I had like, sometimes I have, a, had, have a little bit of trouble with that. Like it crashes randomly from time to time. It has become better. But it, I mean, uh, so I had situations where like crashing repeatedly in a project, and then you have to restart it. It's a bit weird sometimes, but uh, yeah, it's better than nothing. It's like, like Adi, what are you using for for new new event? Like, what well, what's your plugin? What's the plugin situation there? Yeah, so I, I use Vim Elixir right now. The language server crashed a lot for me too. I haven't tried it since it's been over a year since I last tried it. Like opening a file or a project in Vim and I'm, I would open a file project in Vim and I see my CPU is like running at 90% and I'm not even running anything. So I, I think the Vim plugins, it was called Ale, which kind of delegated to the language server, wasn't very well written. So I might give it a try now. Honestly, Vim Elixir is good enough that I haven't had the need to use language server till now the autocomplete and documentation and whatnot, you can always, it, you can manually tie it with ASDF or just like a version manager and it syncs with that and documentation and everything works really well. So you can actually code on your plane, you know, and without having to Google, you know, hex docs and, and Vim shows it right there. So it's, it's pretty good. It's all as close to language server as you can get without being language server. 
So it also includes like autocomplete and stuff. Yes, totally does. Yeah. With Vim, it's not very hard to add autocomplete because Vim Vim's autocomplete is very extendable. So it yeah, Vim Elixir extends that to support all the dependencies that have been already loaded. And, and Ellen, is there like anything in like IntelliJ using beyond like the Elixir plugin you already mentioned? Anything you like use when you build Elixir? Yeah, it's a, that's a really good question. I, I don't, I mean, I was just thinking and actually trying to go through the plugin list while you guys were chatting. And I think, of course, I always use SAS. So the SAS plugin should be okay, at least for reading the syntax. I mean, I feel like I'm so boring compared to you guys. I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything special that, you know, I actually went through and started unclicking a bunch of stuff because I don't really write Java as, as IntelliJ was kind of written for. So I started unchecking a bunch of Java things I never use. I don't, I really couldn't find very much. There is a Tailwind one, which which supports the syntax again. Man, I, I don't know. I, I really don't see anything else that works for, for me for most of the time. Sometimes it doesn't work right, but I think most of the time it's pretty okay. Well, you guys are catching me at a loss. I feel like maybe I'm too boring. Maybe I'm missing something over here. I mean, I actually also dabbled with the plugin you mentioned it a while ago, a while ago uh, but it's it didn't didn't stick. But yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned Java. Like, if if, I, if there's one thing I miss from my Java days, it's the tooling. Like, the tooling is just so insanely good. Like, if you use IntelliJ for for Java development, it's like really really creme de la creme. Like, there's there's nothing better. But that's something I miss a little bit sometimes. But <laughs> but Elixir is a lot more niche, so it makes sense that, that there didn't went as many man hours into the tooling. Even though like the, the tooling on the command line level is like amazing, like Nexus is, 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 is pretty pretty awesome to use. Well, I use Android Studio for my, uh, my when I make my Flutter apps, so I work a lot with Flutter, and so it, you know you just kind of get kind of used to it. And so they're pretty close, but I, I don't know why I choose one over the other for using like I mean obviously IntelliJ you can also write Flutter apps with it, but I think it's just the setup and everything else that just kind of already is already there for most things, certain window layouts. I guess maybe that, that could be something too that maybe maybe people might find useful is, uh, you know, maybe you want a certain certain panes to show, certain panes not to show, because that is something that you can do, of course, with uh, IntelliJ, is kind of show certain windows for certain languages. I mean, do you, actually, I'm kind of curious though, because I, I see like in IntelliJ, a lot of, a lot of things, I'm, I'm guessing also VS Code probably has something, but do you actually use Git? By terminal, or do you actually use like some kind of extension to your work workflow? For me, I like to just use the command line. Like uh, IntelliJ has a pretty big integration with Git, but like people try to use it, and the options aren't so clear for me. So I just always fall back to the terminal. So I was kind of curious about if you guys are, are using something else to kind of supplement your uh, your Git. I think the only thing that I do use is I think I use the source tree for like getting certain like pieces back in history. I just find it easy to use. I don't know how to do that by hand. So I don't know about you guys. Yeah, for me, I mean, I use the Git that's in integrated with VS Code. I mean, I go to the command line all the time. So it's, it's not an exclusive thing by any means, but for, for like branching, pushing, pulling, managing merge conflicts, VS Code just is pretty nice. It, it makes it pretty easy. But yeah, occasionally I'll be on the command line and I'll just, type the command instead of running it through the IDE or the a text editor. I'm not really committed to either one. It's just what, wherever I'm working at the moment. That's actually a great topic in itself. Like, how do you actually manage your, you know, when you have not diverging, but when you have to merge and there's a merge conflict, that's always tricky, especially new developers, right? They get freaked out. Oh, yeah, what do I, you know, what do I do? What does all this stuff mean? Uh, I had to walk through quite a bit of people because I had code missing because when they merged 
on their own. Or maybe they left in the uh, little arrow characters inside and everything broke. Yeah, you leave some debug code in. Oops. Yeah, I always have IO inspects everywhere. So when you run the app, you just see a ton of stuff coming to the terminal. <laughs> That's also <laughs> not always not always the best, but it, it's okay. I inspect not too bad, right? People don't get to see that. It just floods the, the screen. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually like you, Alan. I'm, I'm like a command line purist for Git, even for conflict resolution. Like uh, a very sick tool I use, which is like called Fix All Conflicts. And when you like use it on the command line, it's FAC, so it reads fuck. So you're like, when you have match conflict, it's like, fuck, I have to fix this conflict. <laughs> and it's like a, a super simplistic command line uh, version for, for conflict resolution. But yeah, apart from that, like everything else also on the command line for, for Git. I, I've just checked how many Git aliases I have. And I have <laughs> like a one, 178 Git aliases. So yeah, the, 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 my, my Git configuration file has been growing with me over the years. Well, speaking of command lines, which command line do you guys use? Do you use uh, Z Shell or Bash or Fish or Kush or what other ones are there? There are a million of them. I use Z Shell with like the Oh My Z Shell. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure plugin framework or what the, what the term there is. And yeah, something. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've been flirting with Fish because I've heard that, like, for example, the, the auto completion is pretty neat, but didn't really look into it yet. So can't mm-hmm. really comment. I use Zish as yeah. well with Omar Zish. It's uh yeah, been using it for a while. And and just uh to previous conversation, I use Git in command line too. I, I code in command line, so <laughs> everything I do is in command line. But sorry, um, go ahead, Alan. It makes sense. It would be weird if like using Vim and then <laughs> switch over to like source <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I feel like it's uh yeah. I mean, just to just extend this command line thing, like uh, it's uh, like. My coding, the way I do development is like so tight. I mean, I didn't command them, but it's so tight to my configurations. Like in 2019, I built I built like a, I used a few tools to like build a framework for myself where, you know, I do TDD, so I write tests first, right? And my goal is to like get the test to pass. So, and there was a point where I was like jumping between the meetings and I had like 15, 20 minutes of time in between. And that time it just gets you to you know kind of warm up, right? And like it, it's very hard to make progress. So with the Tmux, it's something called Tmux Resurrect, which you know resurrects the previous session. And I just built Vim session on top of it, which also saves my Vim buffer and my cursor, which line I was, and what IEX or Rails console was open, right? So as I resurrect my Tmux shell, it also restarts the watcher, system watchers, which run the test, which was failing, which I was working on last time. So if I'm out of an hour long meeting, boom, resurrect. I don't have to worry about anything. Get this test to pass. <laughs> it just, it took me a while to build that, but like it just took away a lot of warm up time that otherwise, you know, would I would take 15 minutes to just get warmed up. So anyway, just it, yeah, speaking of command line, I just did. It's, I'm like so coupled. My work environment is like so like tied to my command line configurations. It sounds pretty dope, to be honest. I mean, I, I also use a test watcher, but like a, a tool called Enter. But that's like more along the lines of like a, you, you pipe it in a list of files and then you can say, okay, please execute this command when, they, when any of these files change. So I use that the combination with like mix test stale. But yeah, that sounds pretty neat to gotcha. be honest. Yeah, I use FS Watch, which is very similar. Yeah, in in, in combination with Mixed Test Tail, it works on both Mac and Macs and Linux. And unfortunately, I have to worry about that right now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I use Z shell and oh my Z shell as well. And I just have a bunch of aliases. I'm constantly adding them. It's like, oh, I need this. And then just keeps it really simple for me to run any particular things that I need to run. I don't have it automatically starting any watchers or anything yet. I've been trying to get some of that to run off of VS code, but I haven't had much luck there either. Do you guys actually use any CI testing? I'm guessing you must do that, right? So that's a lot yeah. of testing run by CI. So my, my, my current job, we're using CircleCI. So mm-hmm. CircleCI with like a, what CircleCI has is this concept of orbs, which is like basically like reusable actions, right? And so we have a bunch of orbs, some for Ruby, some for, for Elixir. And yeah, so we, we use that. It's very streamlined. Yeah, I love CircleCI. I've been, I've been playing around with GitHub Actions uh, last few months, and I prefer that, just, just how uh, the not having to leave the GitHub UI. If creating orbs equivalent in GitHub Actions is a lot harder. <laughs> but yeah, uh, CircleCI is definitely really cool. I wish my work used it. Yeah, fun yeah, fact, we're actually going to switch employers. So um, I, my, my, my new employer will be using GitHub Actions. So. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> well, unfortunately, yeah. my place doesn't use GitHub Actions either. We use something called Concourse. It's an open source CS. We like self-host it, but it's a it's it's very hard to set up and change, and its documentation is like worse than Travis, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah, we're using uh, Jenkins at, at my work. So old school, cool, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't ask me. I. <laughs> I like Circle CI and some of the other ones, but I don't have to maintain Jenkins either. So it doesn't hurt my feelings so much that they're, they want to use that over anything else. But they've got it set up so that it not only continuously, it, so it's not just continuous integration, but it's also continuous deployment. And then it deploys out to where whatever cluster they run that stuff on. And I can't remember the name of the provider. So yeah, so we push, it runs the test, and then it just automatically deploys. Yeah, same here. To, to be honest, I... I would have a hard time adapting to like a place where deployments are going like a manual again. Like I, I'm so used to having like an automatic deployment step that that would be like weird going back to that. I mean, I'm not saying that it's bad, but just for me personally, I'm, I'm like I'm so used to having this automation that it would really take some time to to get used to something else. Mm-hmm. I feel like with the continuous delivery, it gets harder to do that the more microservices you become at my current company for example we like from like a spectrum to zero to netflix we're like very we're like eight or nine in the event driven so my company is like not doing continuous delivery i was surprised at first but it makes sense because you want to introduce like some kind of accountability to you know the owner of that small microservice because if things go wrong it can be very hard to figure out what went wrong with the whole continuous delivery because we have like I forget, like, I think 70 or 80 individual small services, which, uh, and we are a team of, um, I think, like 90 engineers. So it gets hard to, like, trust the uh, computers to do the delivery for us. So what we are doing there is, like, deployment to staging happens automatically as soon as you merge to main or master. We have actually a little small command line tool, which allows you to run, like, a we call a PAC CLI. Because like we we call the microservice like landscape we have park, so it's like park CLI service release, and then you type the name of the service, and then it basically tags the current main or master commit as like the latest release. It's just an incrementing number because I mean for internal services like having semantic versioning doesn't really is useful. 
And then this again gets picked up by CI. So you have this control of the final real production release where you say, okay, for our first release it there, the first release there. Gotcha. For staging, it's it's really just as soon as you merge it, it goes it goes live. Do you run like integration or other end-to-end tests on the entire like uh, suite of apps on stage? Not at the moment. Mm. Not at the moment. It's all, all limited to the service in the question. Mm. But yeah. I feel like that would be a good, that would make me feel, again, depends on you know how many services you have, but like at my company, that would make me feel a bit more confident, <laughs> right? Like having like, uh, like a smoke test uh, end-to-end you know, set of smoke tests that we can run on staging and yeah, to know it's working and then sure CD is uh, can be done for production. Do you have any experience with that, like any tooling, which is great there? Because I mean, I always wanted to look more deeply into like doing some some real end-to-end tests, like in, including more than just one service, but I never found the time to do so. So I'd be curious if any of you have, have done that, have any experience with that? Yeah, I haven't done a ton with the end-to-end tests, so. Yeah, I, I do it for all my apps. I use like, a, you know, basic Cypress. The problem comes with like production apps. And again, with microservices, is that you need good like setup, like seeds and stuff, right? And maintain those across all the apps to make it easier or, or have like, a you know, endpoints that are only exposed in that, that environment, test environment, end-to-end test environment, which can create seeds, right? The infrastructure required to do that in, Microservices so much more, and I haven't been able to figure out at like a company yet. Uh, the the most I did was for like five apps, <laughs> but at my current company, it's uh it's like a dream. I don't think it'll happen anytime soon. Yeah, end to end testing is is kind of tough, right? Things, especially for the UI, I think they change the most. Usually, core logic nearly always stays the same. I think. Just trying to think of, yeah, that's 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 tough, right? Because how do you do end to end? You're talking about really like coming in from like a web browser or something similar and hitting things as an end user, right? Yeah, that, that gets tough. Like, how do you know? You know, it could be a button before, but now it's a link that looks like a button. <laughs> how right. do you attach to that reliable way? You can use an ID, but maybe some people say IDs are too specific to maybe design. It's wow, it can get really tricky. Yeah, I feel like that that at least in my projects, my side projects, I, I, I'll share a link to one of those. I feel like I, I can manage that. The problem comes with microservices is the asynchronous behavior, right? Especially if you're using like RabbitMQ or something to do event-driven architecture, like how long to wait, right? And like making the number of ways different things would go wrong if setup isn't correct is so, so much, right? And it becomes your problem then. <laughs> the end-to-end tests usually are maintained by, you know, I, I guess like the ends, right? Either the the real front end or the uh, apps at the, you know, very back end. And it becomes everyone's problem if something goes wrong. Uh, if your infrastructure isn't set up correctly, it's, it's very hard to manage. But I feel like if it's like a you know, couple apps and one is like front end and one is back end, like something, something as similar as that, I feel like it should have end-to-end tests. Uh, and I feel like something like Cypress.js makes it very easy to write those. And you're right, Alan, like you have to maintain those too, right? Because if you change your UI, you have to change that. But that goes for any tests, right? If you change your interface of anything, you have to change your tests for that. It, it, it's a hard problem. There's not, no simple solution to this. It's, I mean, if, if somebody comes around with a tool to solve this more, more simply, I guess it's going to be worked very quickly. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm curious, a lot of the stuff that I do in 
development, I wind up doing in Docker, right? So I have a Docker file and a Docker Compose YAML in my stuff. And so when I run stuff, I just do Docker Compose up. And that way I can, uh, like if I have like, I use the Webpack dev server, right? For my static assets and stuff like that. And so I have that running on a separate machine or a separate container that does a lot of that work and things like that. And I was just wondering, is that an approach that you guys take? Or do you just kind of, if you're running like a Phoenix app or uh, some other app on the on the back end or something, you know, do you... Do you do that or do you just run it on your machine without any com- uh, container or anything? I definitely containerize it. It it makes life so much easier. All they have to manage is, you know, Docker, right? And yeah, definitely containerize it. I think it's like also a combination of, I mean, I, I do Kubernetes mostly, but if I'm if the app is by itself, I like you said, Chuck, I use Docker Compose and there's something called, I think it's called Watchtower. It's a, another... Mm-hmm. Docker container, you can run that and it watches for any updates to the image registry. And as soon as there's an image just that matches the tag, it auto updates and you know spins up a new container with the latest image. So it's it's a continuous delivery as well. So we can use simple Docker Compose at Watchtower to get like CD. <laughs> so that's the path I usually go. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. I do like a hybrid thing. Like when uh, the app I'm developing, I usually run that locally. But any dependencies this app might have, I run through Docker Compose. So for example, if it needs like a Postgres, I run the Postgres for Docker Compose. If it needs Redis, I run the Redis for Docker compose but like actually running the app that's something i tend to do locally so yeah like i said a hybrid thing like the main reason there is actually um that i find it simpler for local development to run it locally um, because for example when elixir when you when you have a, a docker in file to well, for, for real production usage i always tend to do a release in there like a multi-stage build so i first build the release and then i actually have like for example the, the alpine base image and copy the release over from the build stage and that's not because you know, something i can use for local development because it's like <laughs> the, the, the development cycle would be super slow so you would have another would need another docker file to like set up the, the base and like to the developing stuff and that, that's then why i why i tend to have like one docker file for, for production and then just run stuff locally my bad. I'm sorry. I thought we were talking about deployment. I do the same, Sasha. Uh, oh, okay. I don't. I don't containerize it for local development. My bad. Sorry. I, mean, I, I know people who do that. I do. Uh, that uh, yeah. maybe that's just weird, but I do. Uh, I, I, I've also seen people do that, but like, yeah, it's just not something I do. I, ne- I never. I never had felt the need to do so. So. So, so Chuck, can you can you elaborate? So, so you run your say for example, you're talking about let's say you say you do more Ruby on Rails, right? So you yeah. run your R spec on a inside a Docker container. Yeah, I usually just run that on the main app container, right? But I run I run the app itself. I spin it up all on its own container. The reason is is because a lot of times what winds up happening between different applications is like one application will be using one version of Ruby or Elixir or something, and another will be using a different version. And I don't want to have to use some kind of version manager. I like being able to just spin it up and say, okay, this runs on this container under blah, blah, blah. And it just it generally just works. Same thing for Postgres versions and things like that. If there are any compatibility issues, it just makes them all go away. 
And so for me, it just keeps it really simple, right? So if I'm going to spin up a new Elixir Phoenix app, right, then it doesn't matter what the other ones are running because I just grab the proper container off of Docker Hub and, and then I know it has the right version of Elixir on it or I've given it instructions to build the right version of Elixir on it, right, in the Docker file. Right. And then similarly with all the other stuff, right? And so if, I, if I'm outsourcing some of the work off to another server that's running some kind of worker thread or worker process or job queue or something like that, it, you know, it just plays nicely over there. And I don't, so as, I don't as, have to fiddle with the rest of it. So right. So as Sasha said, like doing with Elixir, don't you think it'd be like slow to like have to rebuild the image every time you know run like a test, for example? Because yeah, uh, you don't have to rebuild the the container when you're so you use test. volumes, like my amount of volumes into the container. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, you, your app changes it would have to recompile, right? No, what I what I have running there is I just tell it to run the development mode in the container. And then I just mount the folder into the container so that it knows where the app runs. And so it just it just spins it up with your development level server. So anything that will hot reload will hot reload. I see and what you're saying. So so you don't you yeah. don't build you don't use a build to run. You just you volume the lib and use mix Phoenix mix test mm -hmm. through that. Okay, got it. And mix yep. Phoenix server. So you don't like build it at all. Okay, cool. Yeah. I see. So then when I'm ready to deploy, right, then I do a proper build and I'll push stuff to where it has to live in order for my deployment system to grab it and run it. Mm, nice. Yeah, yeah one, one tool I find very interesting in, in the Docker space uh, is actually, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, it's like earthly.dev. So uh, what it does, it's basically like, uh, it's, it, it's as if make files and Docker files had a baby. So <laughs> <laughs> it's seriously, like, look look at that. It's, it's really, it's just like that. Because you can write the, these targets, like, like how you do it in a make file, and then in the target, you can also specify, okay, this is like, has uses this Docker file as a base, and then you run basic your commands on this, this, this Docker file, this Docker container. And another thing it has, for example, is uh, it, it use it has this concept of artifacts. So you can say that like a certain uh, result of a target build target is a certain artifact, and then in other build targets you can reference this build target and copy artifacts over. And I've, I've, and we have one service where I like tried this out as an experiment because like it's a, just the standard Elixir Phoenix app, and it also has a bunch of JavaScript which needs to run. So I basically added like an earthly file, earth files called into our assets folder, and added an earth file into our root folder. And for the assets folder, I used the node base image, and for the for the for the root folder, I used the Elixir base image. And I copied like the for the deployment, like I basically wrote a target. You can say, okay, please build me the production version of like the JavaScript and, and CSS and stuff. And then I referenced that in the root folder to copy it over, and that worked like a charm. So that's actually something I'm gonna gonna use more like in personal projects. It's actually pretty cool because it takes this idea of like multi-built Docker files, but like that basically gives gives the, the, each of these build steps like names that you can then reference uh, like make targets and it just Echo works, which is like pretty pretty cool, which I found very very nice to use. This is amazing. I have I hadn't heard of this. This is so good and such a great idea, and so much easier to read. The file is so much easier to read. This is really good. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going to I'm probably going to put a link to that in the, the show notes so that people want to show it uh, want to check it out if you can. Yep, absolutely. Actually, we have even like an, an article. Um, I think 
I don't know who exactly, but like an Elixir article where like I, where they migrated hex like for very hex built stuff over to to Earthly. And I'm gonna see if I can find it again. Ah. But that's actually how I came across Earthly. Nice. Any other tools that you guys run on the command line or just around your app? I was just thinking about about reproducible around reading to the Earthly stuff, but I just remember recently I had an issue with npm where. I think you guys usually see like FS events is uh, usually comes up to and doesn't doesn't work on Linux, and uh, that's kind of part of the default I think installation in a Phoenix project. And I guess they must have changed something in more recent version of Node where if you run npm and something fails for some reason, everything just kind of breaks rather than just warning you that certain projects certain things don't don't come in. So I don't know that that's also quite a tricky issue to to deal with. Have you guys handled something similar? It's just me and the pain train, okay? I'm riding the pain train <laughs> by myself, I guess. I guess. Maybe I should stop doing brew upgrade every day and just upgrade into the latest version of Node. That, that's my issue. Just stick on something old and just never upgrade it. It's amazing to me how often I will uh, put stuff into this or that and find out later that it's like, oh, yeah, this one thing is just, yeah, not not what I expected in the sense that it's uh, it'll run on Node 10, right? And then, yeah, you upgrade Node and it, to Node 14 or whatever's latest and <laughs> everything breaks, right? And you have to go through your whole Webpack setup and, and rejigger it. So fun. Serious question. Like, what are these guys doing? Like, is there actually a new feature in each version of Node or something? Because I feel like nothing's yeah. really changing other than just making life difficult for all developers who use it as a build system. I, I try asking people who are... You know, quote unquote, like using Node every day. So Node.js experts have said, I asked them, what what actually changed? And none of them could actually answer my question. And yeah, you go look through the change check. log. I never looked, yeah. So that's that's also my fault. But I just asked people, like, did anything change? Is there something new in this new version? And I, I, nobody had any idea. So I'm just wondering, like, are they just breaking things for fun? <laughs> or, or maybe that's just my, my pessimistic mood. Yeah, my experience with that is that mostly it's like speed it's it's usually speed ups and then anything they want to kind of add to the standard node setup but sometimes the way that they speed things up it causes incompatibilities with uh, some of the build processes and so it'll it'll mess you up yeah i mean uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because just today i had the pleasure of migrating like a we have an old monolith at our at the place i'm working at like probably every place has an old monolith <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had to migrate away from actually node 8 to like a because like it was super deprecated to like a more modern version for our production Docker container just like for security reasons and that, that wasn't fun that, that, that wasn't fun i must say like uh, upgrading these many major versions like a lot of things broke what we ended up at the end of the doing is like um, we basically said okay for local development, we're still going to use Node 8 or Node 10 because those work. And for production version, we're going to Node 14 because like the development tooling we were using there was also very old and that just broke completely. But the actual building, the, the production artifacts of the JavaScript and stuff, for surprisingly worked with Node 14 without breakage. So it was really like, okay, just use Node 14 and the Docker file and not do it anywhere else. But I guess you always get at some point where if you have a piece of software running for quite a while, at some point you might, you have to upgrade dependencies because there are bug fixes and there are security fixes and you have to include them in your software. And then at a certain point you get yeah, the paint, the paint rain, Alan, as you, as you said. 
Yeah, but it's also hard to explain to clients like I, I want to upgrade this thing because you know we don't want to be too far away or whatever. And sometimes upgrades do cause breakage, and yeah. you know sometimes you miss it in the change log, or sometimes there's no change log, and you just have to kind of guess and see what happens. And your tests don't always hit every single edge case, right? And then if then you find this one blog post or this one Stack Overflow question from a guy and it's like describing the same issue and then he's commenting on his own question. And oh, no, no more is solved it. And he's sitting there like, no, no, <laughs> tell me. Tell me what did you find? Yeah. But but to get back to your like question like just earlier, Charles, um, there's like one tool I'm very, very fond of uh, for local development. It's um, Fuzzy Finder. So it's FZF. And so what it does basically, the name is, it kind of tells it in the name. It allows you to fuzzily search through a list of things. By default, it's searching for your file system. But if you pipe anything in it, you can fuzzily search through that. And I've actually built like a, to be honest, fairly ugly, but usable fuzzy Git index on top of that. So it's like a tool I always use. I call it fuzzy index. And then when I run that, it just gives me like a list of changed files. And then for example, if I then press tab, it just adds them to the index. And if I press tab again, it removes them again from the index. So um, there, there's a lot of stuff I've built locally, like uh, for myself, on top of Fuzzy fuzzy Finder. And it's like, like, if I would have to name one tool, which makes my life easy on the command line, it's Fuzzy Finder. That's just an amazing piece of software. Yeah, huge fan of MCF. I use it with RibGrep for fuzzy finding files uh, in Vim. Yeah, you can like plug it with anything. Like I said, you add a Git integration with it for uh, fuzzy finding things. It's really cool. I think it's also written in Haskell, which makes it double cool. <laughs> I love that. I, I'm looking at the Git repository as so speaking. It's written in Go. I'm sorry. Ah, oh, shoot. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Forget I said anything. <laughs> and, it, and it has 15% Ruby in it. Not sure um, where that is coming from. Who knows? So I'm curious, Mac or Windows or Linux? People are going to take issue with my halfway hesitation on adding. <laughs> like, if, if I could choose, like, from a clean slate, I'd probably actually go with Linux and like look into something like Mix. But as it is, I'm very set up with Mac because just like, uh, as I mentioned a while ago on an earlier show, I, I used to do iOS development, so that, uh, you literally need a Mac. Right, like there's no way around that. So yeah, that's that's kind of why I, why I got stuck with Mac after that, but not really being comfortable like switching to something completely new. Um, yeah, I actually wanted to switch to a Linux laptop after that, my new employer. But then they said like, yeah, you can use Linux if you want, but when we're gonna give you a laptop, you can use Linux. But like seriously, basically everything is set up to be everybody uses Mac, so you're gonna be this lone person using Linux. And I was like, eh, then better not. And then yeah, that, that's how I ended up being you know, using Mac day to day. Definitely Mac, definitely Mac. Of course, because I also do iOS, etc. But I think just there's just a lot more developer tools. I feel at least a lot nicer ones. You know, you're going to definitely get a lot of things working a lot better. Like, I think Windows probably has a bigger ecosystem because more people are using it. But definitely next up would be Mac. And then Linux is still going to be a little bit behind in terms of like, uh, what I mean, like the nicer tools, right? Like, uh, I don't know how to explain what I'm trying to say, but iTerm2 is pretty good. Uh, I think IntelliJ, all these things kind of run pretty well. I just feel like it's a little bit more polished than Linux. I feel like for Linux, yeah, it's customizable. But it's, you're just not going to be as polished as you would get for like a more mainstream OS. But but in general, like I, if I had to choose between Windows and Linux, definitely Linux, without a doubt. 
Windows is just a, a, a mess. It's it's better. It's getting better, right? But yeah, I think I, I still find it kind of weird. Like when I was working in the bank and they would ask us to develop a system on Windows and then somehow deploy it to Linux. And of course, things would never really work out properly, right? The, the, the file system path would obviously be way different. Mm-hmm. So I, it, yeah, that's definitely uh, on my side. That's what I feel. Yeah, I'm, un- I'm unfortunately stuck with the Mac right now because uh, my company has a policy that everyone has to use a Mac. I've been, I joined this company <laughs> five months ago, but have been using Linux and all my side projects happen in Linux. And a lot of times I SSH into my Mac through my Linux. But yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, Docker was built for Linux. It still doesn't run as well on Macs and Docker is like a huge part of my local environment. And also I think the terminal I use, Alacrity, I don't use iTerm. It's Alacrity, it's run in Rust, but that also runs a lot better on Linux uh, compared to Mac because, of course, it's CI is Linux and all the performance tests they do is on Linux. So anyway, I'm going to stop talking about Linux. <laughs> actually, that's a good question. I, I did see, uh, the first time I saw some guy, uh, he actually came to my podcast for the Flutter stuff and he was showing off some things and he was actually using Alacrity. And I'm kind of curious about like, what, you know, why do you choose that one? For me, I, I just use iTerm too. I just kind of, always had it on for a long time and i just downloaded it actually today actually while we were, we were recording this because i i kept thinking about why this guy use it and i heard good things about it but i don't really know much difference between to me terminals or terminal right it, it's maybe i don't get advanced features as, as maybe other people so maybe you can talk about alacrity for a moment yeah i think it's uh from my experience it was so if again, I haven't used iTerm since I switched to Linux, but from when I used to use it, uh, Linux, the terminal that comes with Linux by default was a lot more responsive and it took a lot less memory than uh, iTerm. And Alacrity is like visibly faster than that and uh, much more snappier than that. Uh, configurations are so much easier to share. You can just have a YML file and everything is like uh, shared uh, across different computers. Yeah, it it just the it's really it was really written from like config configurable and configurability and performance in mind, and it's noticeable. So which is why yeah, I use it. It's written in Rust. Like Rust is cool. <laughs> yeah, I love I love Rust. Uh, it's it's actually Alacrity and well, mostly Alacrity was a big. When I was learning Rust, I actually decided to write a password manager in Rust as my first project, which uh, is like where we're right now, 6,000 lines of code. And Alacrity was the project I was learning Rust from. I didn't read a book or anything. Looked at the project. It's so well written. And the CI and stuff, that we are, the way they're doing testing for every little thing is really awesome. So uh, it, it, it's, it's inspiring. If you, look at, if you look at the way they're writing the code, it'll make you want to drop everything and start running Rust. <laughs> it looks pretty cool, to be honest. I've never heard of it before. Check it out. But yeah, yeah, to 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 get back to what you said, Ellen, uh, like tooling on 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 Mac. Um, there's like one thing I, I wouldn't want to miss, which is Dash. Like Dash is like this this documentation browser. Not sure if you're yeah. using it, but like I, I use it daily and multiple times a day. And it's like it's ingrained in my workflow. Yeah, definitely. When I was working in another company before, we I actually asked them to help me to buy the Windows version. There's, there's actually, I think they used to have, I don't know if they still have like a page that's like, not really competitors, but like, if you don't have a Mac, you can use this one and it's compatible. So I asked them to buy me the Windows version and that was that was great. I'm sure they have one also for, for Linux. So that that's a great tool. But I, I use the one for Windows. That's the only one I can talk about. And that one is nowhere near as smooth and as nice I think, you know, as, as Coco, you know, the, the framework for, for Mac. 
So that, that was great. One thing about Dash I wish is that there was easier way to get more documentation because it's always like, okay, is there, like I think Rust as we're talking about, right? Rust, I don't think has any integration with Dash, which I'm a little bit sad about, but since we are talking about Elixir, yes, hex packages is actually supported in mainline, I believe. So you yeah. can pull in any kind of hex package you want. Yeah, in yeah. Rust, I've read, I've seen that they have an issue open basically to support Rust, but there's like some something they have to change in the Rust package manager and Cargo to like make it possible for Dash to pull the stuff. So there is some discussion going on there because I, I, I went down that rabbit hole once when I started to learn Rust. I know Linux has something called, I forget, it's, man, I forget, it's with C, I think. Again, I, I, I use Vim for my documentation now, but uh, things something like that Z, let me actually let me find it. Uh, be zeal docs right that's the one yes. that should be yeah. yes that's yes basically. zeal that's correct that's yes. what you want that's that's basically dash for linux mm, right yeah i actually prefer the vim uh documentation that i have right now it just shows the vim elixir show opens up the actual doc for function which is really cool so anything else, any like secret sauce, any secret sauce you, you pour on your elixir to make it more tasty? <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. No, no. I'm sure no, we'll no think secret. of stuff afterward to be like, I should have mentioned this tool. Yeah, no, no secret ASDF. sauce. I say ASDF definitely has been a life saver. Uh, yeah, ASDF. yeah, for sure. We, we, yeah, we mentioned it a few times, but not, yeah. not explicitly. Are there are there linters for elixir? There's Credo. Credo, yeah. I've actually met Rene uh, a while ago because he, he lives in Germany. So I, I messaged him on Twitter if he wants to come over for, for, for a meetup in Cologne uh, because I also organized a Elixir meetup in, uh, in Cologne. And yeah, so so he came over and talked a bit about Credo and like how his, his philosophy behind it. That was pretty pretty cool. Nice. I guess you could say Dialyzer is a linter too. Speaking of Dialyzer, how, how do you guys do you guys use it? And if you do, how, like how religiously do you use it? <laughs> <laughs> I have mixed feelings about Dialyzer, to be honest. Um, and I, I, I did use it in a few projects. And um, I definitely use it in my open source work just to like, if people use my open source work, they don't get like weird Dialyzer issues, right? Mm. But I mean, it, it, all the time I've used Dialyzer, there was like one issue Dialyzer actually caught. I was like, oh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have uh, caught this without Dialyzer. But there were a lot of scenarios where like I had the type spec slightly wrong, and then they, I mean, Dialyzer is not very good at pointing the, right. the root cause or something. And then I went into his hand about okay, what's going on until I finally figured out okay, that I <laughs> fucked up it. Uh, one type spec is over there, so. Uh, yeah, mixed feelings. Like, I'm not not sure if it has saved me more time, but if it cost me more time, yet. Yeah. yeah, I think I think Dialyzer works uh, perfectly if all their type specs are term colon colon term. <laughs> 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 yeah, it. I, I use it in my projects, which are like less than you know, like very very small projects, like isolated ones. It's very hard to use it with like actual Phoenix apps. Just doesn't just doesn't work. What about you, Alan? Have you used Dialyzer? I haven't used Dialyzer, but I have used type specs because they're still good for exporting documentation, right? So it's mm. when you're working for clients and then you can export a nice X doc documentation and give it to them and everything's kind of typed out like that. It's uh, it's definitely good. It's And it's also nice to see yourself too as you're looking through and you can see, oh, okay, this function takes these things. Okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like Sasha said, I feel like if I'm doing an open source project, which is like fairly simple, I would definitely add Dialyzer to it. So, for the very little 0.001% of population who are using it religiously, I, I don't want to mess up their project. But otherwise, yeah, if I'm like so 
sold on types. I, I would just, I, I feel like Gleam is at a point where I would just use Gleam or there's like Hamler. I haven't really tried that yet, but yeah, there's like a few. Everybody has a bunch of, of like language development on the beam, but I'm, I'm, I'm not in the picture about like where, where they are standing. There's also Caramel, which is like OCaml right. ported to the beam. Right. It, I, I don't think it has a interrupt though, right? Which is I think the biggest uh, selling point for Gleam. We can like it interrupt is so, so like it, it, it the interrupt is done at the expense of type. I think which again you could yeah, pro probably you, probably like TypeScript and JavaScript, right? I have not really played around with the interrupt in TypeScript and JavaScript to be honest. But I mean, I, again, I could quickly say what it is. In Gleam, you can export Elixir functions, and uh, they call like external uh, functions, and you can like basically give you can choose what type this function returns and it gets added to the inference. So, I mean, again, you get to pick the type. So it's not inference for that function, but for the rest of the stack, it is type inference. So again, I think it, I think it's a small price to pay for interrupt because uh, you can literally now have like a Gleam project, a project for which types make more sense, like an NP-hard problem, and then use like with the, use that with a Phoenix app, right? I think that's really cool. And while we're talking about types, there's also like I mean, we, we mentioned Dialyzer, but there's also also a project called Gradualizer. I'm not sure where it stands, to be honest, but like the idea is basically to bring a gradual type system to Dialyzer because, uh, to 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 Erlang and Elixir. Because what 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 Dialyzer does is something called success types. So as long as one path through your program returns the type you that annotated it does, then it's fine, even if the other paths don't. But what the gradualizer does is like more strict. And I actually saw a talk a few years ago on the code beam in Stockholm. So that, that's actually something which, which could be fairly interesting to see if, 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 if this project matures to like get a bit more type safety in Elixir and, and, and Erlang. I have never heard of it. Uh, uh, what did you call it again? Gradualizer. Gradual, oh, gradualizer. Oh, I see. Wow. Okay. I can also talk, share the talk uh, because the, the talk is actually fairly interesting because like it explains like what the type ideas, like the ideas, the theory behind that is without like blowing your mind with, with like abstract math stuff. So uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Oh, it's for Erlang. Very cool. So that's and they, I think there's like a like a not a fork, but like there's also a project for for Elixir. But I, 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 the last time I looked at it is probably a, one and a half years ago. So no <laughs> idea where it's standing today. I see. No guarantees. All right. Well, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Anything else before we do picks? Nope. All right. Let's do some picks. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit, and you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Sasha, do you want to start us with picks? 
be honest, all, all the things I could have picked was both tools I, I already mentioned. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess you're going to have to, to go with me without a pick from me. <laughs> Gi- giant episode full of picks, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Alan? I have two picks. So first pick is, uh, you guys heard me talk about Flutter quite a lot. I wanted to throw a interview I did with Casper Lund, one of the creators of Dart, which powers Flutter. I think it's a really great, interesting uh, talk by, or no, that, well, podcast session I did with him, where he kind of goes through his history of kind of like where he, you know, when he graduated all the way up to where he is now. And it's interesting to hear, you know, what things he did in the past and how he kind of shaped the the way Dart came out, right? So it kind of started off using Java, and then he went over to V8 eventually. And when I write Dart, I feel like it's a good mix of Java and JavaScript together, uh, if that makes sense. And uh, I think it's it's a great interview. I really learned a lot from from that. And yeah, I think uh, really should check it out. The other pick I have is we keep talking about Rust, and I did a Rust pick last week, I think. And I have another one called Rust Servers, Services, and Apps. Uh, the one I did last week uh, or last time was um, about just Rust web development. This is a similar one. There's definitely a lot of Rust web development to it, but they do use a different framework instead of Warp in the last book. This one, they're using Actix Web, which is also a little bit controversial, both good and bad. And they also talk about how you can use Rust for WASM and the front end and server-side rendering and everything. I just started reading it, so I, it seems like it's going to be quite exciting where you can use basically Rust for nearly everything, right? Your front-end code, your back-end code, templating, server-side rendering, client-side rendering. If that's really what it is, I think this is going to be quite exciting for people who really want to dig into Rust and see what you can do with it. So, so far, I'm loving the book. That's why I really want to recommend it to people to check out. It's still in Meep, so it's still early stage. But what I read so far, I really like. Good deal. Adi, do you have some picks? Yeah, I didn't, but uh, uh, Alan bought me enough time to <laughs> find some. <laughs> so I know uh, a, a couple of Alexa companies uh, that are hiring right now for like entry-level Alexa developers. One of them just... Uh, are in Boston and they're a very good company named Corvus Insurance. The link will be uh, in the description. And yeah, great place to work. Hit them up if you're interested in Elixir jobs. And another one that I use in my projects, and since we talked about Elixir setup today, was this uh, dependency called Sobelo. It's uh, like some whitelisted security issues in a Phoenix app. It like, you know, you can add it to the CI and run a mixed Sobolo task and it will like look for SQL injections and, you know, known vulnerability problems, configurations and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. Like security tool for your Phoenix app. And yeah, actually that that's pretty much it for today. Awesome. I'll throw in a few picks. So uh, one of the picks that I have, I was watching a documentary about one of the Supreme Court justices, which I... I it's it's so interesting just to kind of see the, I guess, recent history of some of these folks. And then it's like, hey, these folks are still kind of influencing the world at large today. This one's called Created Equal, and it's Clarence, Tom- Clarence Thomas in his own words. It was really just fascinating to hear about his story growing up and getting to where he wound up. Just Just kind of fascinating to see, oh, this is what shaped him this way, and this is what shaped him that way. There are a couple of documentaries out there about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. And and again, you know, it's just kind of interesting to see how over time some of this stuff came together. So, you know, I'm going to recommend that you go check out some of that if you're, especially if you're into politics in the U.S. But yeah, anyway, this one was in particular interesting. And it's the only one that I've seen about Clarence Thomas. So I thought I'd shout that out. And then I've also been uh, listening to a book called Outwitting the Devil 
and it's by Napoleon Hill, who wrote uh, Think and Grow Rich. And effectively, he just talks about how the, well, it's an interview with the devil is, is kind of how it's framed. But it's interesting because a lot of this stuff is more philosophical than really doctrinal. And it's, hey, I use fear to motivate people to do this. And I use this pressure, this negative pressure to motivate people to do this or this or this, right? And for me, it just kind of made me think, okay, am I am I falling into these traps where, yeah, you know, I get frightened or I get worried or I get upset or I get wrapped up in this kind of issue or that kind of issue. And then I fail to live up to who I believe I'm supposed to be, right? And so if you're looking for kind of a, a book that'll make you think about who you are and where you want to end up and kind of the reactions that we tend to have to particular things, I think this book is well worth the read. So I'm going to pick it as well. And I guess I'm the last one doing picks. So we'll wrap up here. Thanks, guys. This was really, really interesting. And hopefully people get some ideas on how they can improve their development process. Till next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.